Susan Swain. On this episode, my C-SPAN colleague Peter Slen will talk all things Super Tuesday with veteran political journalist and historian Carl Cannon. He's the Washington editor of Real Clear Politics. He's covered presidential politics since 1984. We'll handicap the 2020 field and look back over Super Tuesday's past and their role in cementing party nominees. Well, nearly a third of Democratic presidential delegates will be chosen this Super Tuesday. Fourteen states, Democrats abroad and American Samoa, will all be voting. Carl Cannon, how decisive do you think this Super Tuesday will be? Well, you've got you've got one third of the delegates that will be at the Democratic convention in Milwaukee that will be chosen on Tuesday. Now, we won't know all of them. California is going to take a while to count. But you start to think about in a crowded field, and if one person can win most of those states, the advantage they have may be insurmountable. And I'm talking about a specific candidate now. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about Bernie Sanders. So this could be decisive. Decisive, maybe not. You you saw on the debate stage, uh, every Democratic candidate, except Bernie Sanders, uh, wouldn't commit to the idea that the person with the most delegates going to Milwaukee should be the nominee. So I don't know decisive, but it's going to be, this is going to be quite a story of the day after Super Tuesday when you have all of these states picking all of these delegates. Well, 1,357 pledged delegates are up for grabs on Super Tuesday. 1,991 are needed for nomination on the first ballot. California, 415 alone in that state. That's right, Peter. And, and that, that word that you used as a keyword, uh, committed delegates. Committed. They can, p- pledged. They cannot vote. They have to vote for who they're supposed to vote for when they get there. They, these, even the superdelegates, they have to vote for, you know, if, if, if they're on the slate that Bernie Sanders carries in that congressional district. And California has very complex rules. But they have to, they have to vote for that person on the first delegate. And so th- 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 there's no smoke-filled rooms. I mean, look, Democrats don't even smoke anymore. But even if there were, there's, there, this isn't going to be done in secret. Uh, these delegates are on that first ballot. They're going to have to vote for who they're pledged to vote for. Well, just here's some of the numbers. There are 4,750 total delegates for the Democrats. 3,979 of them are pledged. 771 superdelegates. Delegates needed for a win on the first ballot, 1991. Subsequent ballots, if it goes to that, 2375. And Super Tuesday delegates, 1357. It gets a little complicated, doesn't it, if it goes past the first ballot? Yes, and, you know, Peter, every journalist my, of my generation has been longing, praying, really, for a brokered convention. Uh, we may get one this time, and I, we say that every time, but the, 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 way the, de- the way the Democrats have set up their rules and the field is so large, getting to 50% of the delegates is going to be difficult. Um, perhaps Bernie Sanders can do it. Uh, if, if Joe Biden caught fire or Mike Bloomberg caught fire and ran the table, perhaps they could do it. But if you, if you were, if you're a, as a betting man, I would say the odds are that the, the, the leader won't have 50% going into Milwaukee. Now, you mentioned uh, Mike Bloomberg. He has spent 200, 300, 400 million dollars 
so far, most of it on television ads, but he skipped the first four states. Yeah, he had a, he had a theory of the case. They, you know, they all have a theory of the case. You look at them, and they're up there bickering with uh, each other in these debates and acting like children and being petty. But, but privately, they have a theory of the case that's, that's rational, how they can get there. Mike Bloomberg's theory of the case was that Joe Biden would flounder. And that then the party establishment and rank and file Democrats who are not democratic socialists or not on the left, sort of the left quarter of the party would be looking for an alternative and he would be that alternative. Now, did Biden flounder? Well, he didn't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, but he ain't dead yet. Uh, and the person who floundered, it turned out, was Mike Bloomberg in the first debate in Nevada. Now, he didn't plan on being there. Uh, he was not competing in Nevada, but he did so well with these ads that he got on stage. He didn't seem quite ready. But we're going to find out on Super Tuesday if, if the kind of money he spent on these ads has, can really sway an electorate because they are, they are very good ads and he spent a lot of money on them. So it's, it's a test case. I think political scientists will be studying this for years, how well those ads helped him on Super and Tuesday. And whether or not they can overcome his debate performances? Yeah, well, in the first debate, really, the second debate was none of them were any good. They were all they were too interested in bickering. But the first debate, he didn't seem prepared. They all attacked him, which he should have anticipated. He didn't, and he didn't do well. The second debate was a wash. I think I don't think the South Carolina debate. I don't think it helped any of them. But yeah, is, are the debates more important than ads? These are interesting questions, and and we'll get some answers on Tuesday. Does Bernie Sanders have a ceiling? I don't, I'm hesitant to say that. And the reason I'm hesitant to say that is that it, it depends in a way how you define that. Uh, f and I learned this four years ago. Donald Trump was said to have a ceiling. And he was, he was winning all these primaries. But remember, he wasn't getting 50% of the vote. He was getting 30%, 40% as the field was crowded. The reason the field was crowded is the same reason it's crowded this year. All of those other re Republicans thought, if I can just get all my these other guys to quit, I can beat, I can get a go against Donald Trump one on one. I can beat him. Now there's no evidence that that was true, but they all thought that. Uh, but no, but because they all thought that, they were slow getting out. Meanwhile, Trump's racking up the delegates. The other, he's he's getting under the skin of the others. And by the time, and and, and by the time it's a, a, in May in Indiana, these places, by the time there's only two or three, he's winning anyway. So I don't. I've learned to be modest about this. The, the establishment views that Sanders has a ceiling. I'm not sure that's true. Second biggest prize, Texas, 228 delegates at stake. Texas has morphed a little bit politically, hasn't it, over the last 10 years? Well, sure, it has. And, and what you have there is, a, like everywhere in the country, really, but a rising Latino population. And... Democrats who are, for a generation, it's been a Republican state. But, you know, there's people old enough to remember when it was a Democratic state. And so the state is getting a little closer. Now, there aren't statewide Democrats elected there. But the margin, the margins have been getting closer in presidential elections. And, you know, look, Democrats tell you this every four years. This year we, we carry Texas. Well, I, I don't see that. But, but in terms of the primary electorate, we don't quite know where Texans are. The old, there, there used to be an old split back in the days of John F. Kennedy, the, Ralph Yarborough and John Connolly, these Democrats. 
it's not that clear cut anymore. You have progressives in Austin, you have Latinos all over the state, you have, you know, so there's populists, the young voters, the millennials. And here's the one thing to remember, because this is true in Texas and, and it's true everywhere else. Peter, the, the, the millennials are the largest generation of voters in American history. That's new this time. It was last time they were on the cusp of overtaking baby boomers. Well, they have. And so if Bernie Sanders is doing good with young voters, that used to be a throwaway line. That's not a throwaway line anymore. That's his base, and it's a pretty good base to have, even in Texas. Are these winner-take-all primaries? No, they've outlawed them. And again, this is here's the, here's the problem with these Super Tuesdays. And Super Tuesdays pass. When I was a kid, California was winner-take-all, and it was held in June. And if you could hang on then, you could show the party you were really the person that should be the nominee. Well, that's gone now. It started, it's gradual. George McGovern started that. They didn't, the progressives didn't want this. They wanted their strength to be reflected. But now, no, no state is winner-take-all. And it's, it's not even winner-take-all by congressional districts. So if you're, if you're or, well-organized or if you have a, a strong core of support, like Bernie Sanders, even no matter what it's, if it's, you know, 20%, if it's, as long as it's more than 15%, you'll get delegates everywhere. So California has now moved up to Super Tuesday, and it didn't want to be in June. It wanted to be relevant. But it's done away with the winner-take-all. And so what it's done is, in a crowded field, it helps a candidate who has a, a committed cadre of supporters, even if those supporters are only 20% of the party, that person is going to get delegates, and perhaps in California, the most delegates. So let's say a Joe Biden or an Amy Klobuchar pick up 10, 15% of the vote in, in, in state X, does that keep them alive? Well, let's, let's, let's stick with California instead of state X. The way you ask the question is interesting. 10%? No. They're hosed. 15%? That's good because there's this 15% threshold, but it applies to all of them. And the problem in California, we have a story in Real Clear Politics this week written by a well-known journalist, Lou Cannon. You may be familiar with him. He points out that you could have, you put all these also-ran candidates together, you get 28, 30, 40% of the vote. They won't get any delegates. It will only go to those candidates with 15% or more in these places. And again, so who does that help? Well, it helps the candidates with strong name ID. It probably helps Biden. It helps the candidates who have this committed core like Sanders. It hurts candidates like, like Klobuchar, who's done, who, she's done well in the debates, um, and she, but she's from the Midwest. She's not very well known in California. She hasn't had enough money to compete on the airwaves there the way she would have liked. So it's, it skews the results, and, and it, it's, it's the law of unintended consequences consequences squared. That's what California has this year. Well, Carl Cannon, you mentioned two things. Number one, real clear politics and Lou Cannon. So let's, before we delve into the history of uh, Super Tuesday, let's talk about your history. First of all, what is real clear politics and what's your role? Real clear politics, and I say this even when I'm not on C-SPAN, it's like, in a way, it's like C-SPAN. We are nonpartisan we present all the views. Uh, it's a free website. If you're unfamiliar with it, I, a lot of I think people who watch this program. A lot of them are, but if you aren't, we we got our start in 2000, um, and it it's it did two things that were that one was brand new, one was so old it was new. 
the the new thing was they average polls and the our RCP poll average is I say the gold standard there's other people out there doing it and they're doing it very well but we're, we we I mean, we did it first and I still think we do it best but take that with a grain of salt because I work there um, and the other thing is that we aggregate we have we curate the best arguments left right and center on our front page and now that that's a model of journalism that goes back to Benjamin Franklin's day but I'm sorry to report it's not general it's not followed as very much anymore and so whatever your own views are of politics you will find them reflected on our page and the hope is that you'll expose yourself to another view and maybe open your mind a little bit and see that there are other there are merits to other arguments that you may not necessarily realize so that's and i and what i is in charge of is the original content so we have reporters we've got phil wegman covered south carolina for us and susan crabtree covered nevada for us and we have these reporters who uh Howard Feynman, who you remember, he's a new member, a new contributor. He was in New Hampshire for us. So we do that, and we try to, we try to be nonpartisan. Everybody says that, but I think we do a pretty good job. Yeah, and your title is Washington Bureau Chief at Real Clear Politics, but you're also executive editor at the Real Clear Politics Group? Well, Real Clear Media Group. That's our other silos. We have, we have a polling unit now. Uh, John De La Volpe runs our polls, and we have a publishing unit. We publish books, and we have other real clear science, real clear history, real clear religion, real clear defense, real clear markets. We have these things, and I'm, I'm nominally over those editors, but they they really do their own thing. Who founded it in 2000? Uh, John McIntyre and Tom Bevan, two friend. It's interesting. They weren't friends. They were both went to Princeton, and. John played lacrosse and Tom played football. You'd think they'd know each other. It's not that big a school, but they didn't. But they met in Chicago, and they were political junkies. And I tell people they didn't know that much about daily journalism, but it was a good time to not know much because people like me who were born and raised in it, a lot of the things that we took for granted or believed in were about to be blown up, by mostly by the Internet, but by other forces. And they started this website. I mean, it's, a, it's like... It didn't happen in the Silicon Valley. It happened in Chicago, but you know, out of their garage, running this site, and it's it's taken off. Um, and I I joined them about ten years ago, and I had a long career in newspapers, and and magazines. I with National Journal, and and we alluded to Lou Cannon earlier. I was I was born and raised in the news business. My father, Lou Cannon, was Ra- I say I think generally acknowledged Reagan's best biographer. Covered Reagan. In Sacramento and in Washington for the Washington Post has written many books. Lives in California now. And where did you get your start? I grew up in California. My first newspaper job was paperboy, a profession that barely exists anymore. You get on bikes and deliver newspapers. The San Francisco Chronicle was the paper I delivered, and uh, you, know, I, you were like Homer Macaulay in the Human Comedy. You'd go to people's houses and give them the paper. Um, and then I went to journalism school at the University of Colorado and. Started my career in, in Virginia, small Virginia newspapers, and worked in Georgia and California newspapers, and was sent here by the San Jose Mercury News back in, you know, I thought I'd be here a couple of years to go back to California. Well, Reagan was president when that happened, so I've been here all that time. You've written a couple of books as well. I've written, a, my first book was called The Pursuit of Happiness in Times of War. I talked on this network with it about with Brian Lamb. It's how presidents and other American leaders use the language of the Declaration, the preamble, to rally Americans in times of war or other national crisis. And I, my most recent book is called uh, On This Date, uh, Discovering America One Day at a Time. 
and it's uh, it's a series of vignettes, 368 of them. There's leap year and a couple I did twice. Uh, a little vignette about something that happened in in the United States on that date. Well, Carl Cannon, what's the effect of President Trump holding rallies in a lot of the primary states right before these Democratic primaries? You know, have you seen anything like that before? Yes, I have, but it, not to this extent. Um, you know, presidents want to. Look, the old days of the president standing down during the opposition party's convention, that was a civility that you could tell that people in the White House, they wouldn't even believe it ever happened. But, you know, we're, we're beyond that point now. Trump's trying to show his, his strength in these states. And the early primary state of Iowa, the early caucus state, is a state he thinks he can carry. He wanted to remind people of that. He'd like to carry New Hampshire, too. He, he plans on carrying South Carolina. So these early states... Uh, or places where he could show he could flex his muscle and, and remember we we've never had a president impeached in the first term like this he's he's feeling put upon he wants to sort of get back at the democrats he's he's not he's not over it yet let's just say well how did this all begin where did super tuesday come from i i was thinking about this the first time i heard the phrase was in 1976, actually. And I wasn't covering politics yet. I was just, just barely out of college. But, but it was, there were, it was, at the end of the row, we talked, to, there was a, there were three primaries on the last day, June 8th, I want to say. Now, I'm doing this from memory right now. June 8th. But it was, it was uh, New Jersey, Ohio, and California. And that's how I knew about it. And this was a lot of delegates. And Jimmy Carter had kind of stolen the march on the Democratic field that year in Iowa. And, and by, but by the end of it, he was, he was an outsider, not, not to the extent Trump is, but he challenged the establishment. And the establishment was thinking, well, what are we going to do to stop him? And they didn't really have a candidate. They had a couple of candidates, but they, weren't, they hadn't been able to do it, Scoop Jackson and Mo Udall. And so Jerry Brown entered late. He was the new governor of California, young this is the first time he was governor, very young. And he won, I think, four of the last six primaries. But he, he, won, he won Maryland. And then he won um, New Jersey on the last day, uncommitted one, but that was, a, that was his slate. He won California, and it came down to Ohio. Now, partly it came down to Ohio because Jody Powell, who worked for Carter, convinced people that Ohio was the real referendum. You know, New Jersey, uh, uncommitted. California, he's from California. Ohio's where it's at. And that was a pretty good spin. And they had an operation in Ohio. It was, they had Ohioans on their staff, Jerry Austin and, and Greg Schneiders, uh, Carter did. And Dick Sless, the governor there, was for Carter. And they pulled it out. And that was that's kind of the first Super Tuesday. Although there were, there were some primaries early in the season in May, three primaries on the same day, or maybe six of them, uh, between on the Republican side. And, and Reagan was challenging Ford, remember? Reagan was challenging Jerry Ford, and they split those two. So it, wouldn't, it wasn't really that super. But the, so the first Super Tuesday really is the day that Carter loses but wins by winning Ohio, and after that, and then the term sort of took off. And, but it had a real Southern flavor to it in the early days, didn't it? Oh, well, that's right. Uh, you know, the, the Super Tuesday, the way we think of it now, started in 1980 when three Southern states... Um, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, decided they, they were going to band together the same day, give themselves more influence. And, 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 if you th- and if you think about it, what was going on there, two things. One, states want to have a 
power. They want to, you know, everybody wants to have their voice heard, but also the party leaders want to sort of help get the person who would be most toughest to beat in, in October, in November, excuse me, in November. And so, you know, and that, that look, that's self-serving, but they want, the Southerners want a moderate. And that was the first uh, Super Tuesday. Uh, there was, uh, you know, Reagan had lost to Ford in 76, and by 1980, there's no stopping him. But the Southerners, knew that, and Jimmy Carter's the incumbent, but the Southern Democrats knew that Ted Kennedy was challenging Carter, and they thought they'll help Carter by having these early primaries in these states, and it did help Carter. Well, March 8th, 1988, 21 states <laughs> held primaries, and mostly in the South, but Washington and Hawaii as well, Massachusetts. Was it decisive in 1988? Well, it was decisive, but it backfired. It didn't, it didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen. Now, in 1980, what happened was these Southern Party chairmen on the Democratic side in 1980, they had looked at 84. What had happened in 84? Well, Walter Mondale carried one state, and they thought, okay, and, and he'd gone, I, re, I covered that. That was the first campaign I covered. He went into Georgia, Mondale was, and the governor wouldn't be seen with him. And so the Southern Democrats said, we need a more moderate person. So we're going to have this super, super, you know, Tuesday. Um, but then other states said, well, well, maybe we should go that day too. And so, it, it, so the, the idea is you're going to not get a guy like Michael Dukakis. That's the idea. But you got Michael Dukakis. So how did that happen? Well, a couple of three reasons. The first is is that the theory was, in my view, the theory was wrong to begin with. 1984, Walter Mondale, you know, he he got a hearing. They got a hearing. They had Jesse Jackson ran that year, John Glenn ran that year, and it came down to Gary Hart and Mondale, and and the moderates had their say. They just didn't win. And so, you know, the primary calendar wasn't their problem. And the other thing was, look, they, they lost to Ronald Reagan. They lost, well, anybody would have lost to Ronald Reagan. For the Democrats to beat Ronald Reagan in 1984, Franklin Roosevelt would have still been alive. And he wasn't. So, to me, the thing maybe was ill-considered to begin with. But then in 1988, what happened was, and this echoes of now, you had a big field. And so, they want a moderate, but... Jesse Jackson and Al Gore split the Southern primaries. Uh, these Northern states added their states. Dukakis won them. Um, Dick Gephardt and Jesse Jackson and Gore siphoned off votes in Florida that might have gone to a moderate, and so Dukakis won there. And so in the end, uh, it not only didn't work, it backfired. It assured Michael Dukakis would be the nominee, Super Tuesday of 1988. The law of unintended consequences. Okay, that was 21 states in 88. It's 14 states this year. It's been a variety of states every year. They right, that's come right. in, they go out, they that's come right. in, they go that's out. Right. Yeah, well, and the, look, and the party tries to control it. You know, eight years ago, they, they punished these states. Oh, if you, Michigan, you move up, we, we won't seat your delegates. Well, come on, we cannot seat their delegates. The, so the National Party really has very little control over it. They've tried to exert control of it. And, and again, the, the National Party tries to exert control for the most logical and healthy of reasons. The parties want to have the best nominee. That's, and they feel, you know, should we have a regional primary? Should we get rid of Iowa and New Hampshire? Should we, why did South Carolina jump up? Every year you have these 
but the states really decide themselves, and that that's that's the essence of of the problem. Unless you're the nominee, then you think it's the beauty of the system. Well, Carl Cannon, we have a case in 1988 and in 2020 where a state like Massachusetts is part of Super Tuesday, but they're kind of like the kid in the back of the room raising his hand and nobody's paying attention to him, right? Well, yeah, Ma- look, Massachusetts has had these nominees, right, and, and they haven't done well. So uh, John F. Kennedy won, but, you know, Dukakis didn't win, Kerry didn't win, Paul Songus uh, ran against Bill Clinton, and that was that was there was another Super Tuesday in '92. Uh, Songus won Massachusetts, but that's it. Massachusetts is not going to have the you know role that Texas does. It just isn't even in the Democratic side. But but if you can if you if these states band together, remember in in uh, 2008, John John McCain, the base of his support was New England. Now, he was not able to do it eventually, but he won New Hampshire. And then on Super Tuesday in 2008, he won all those New England states, including Massachusetts. So, you know, there's power in numbers. And in my, in my way of thinking, if Massachusetts could have a... If you get all these New England states together, that might be a different story. And there are people who want to do this, to have regional primaries. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think what happened in Iowa this year will further that effort? The Iowa thing was inexplicable, and and huh, I think they'll be hard pressed to. They're going to have to really defend their system four years from now. The Democrats, it, but it hurt them on a number of levels. First of all, it essentially rendered irrelevant what had happened there. It also sort of subtly undermines this argument, uh, this single payer health care. I mean, you you know, it's not just conservatives who said, "Hey, wait a minute." The party that that wants to determine every single medical procedure you can have, where, when, and what doctor and what hospital, how much it'll cost, can't count votes, and they're in one state. This was not a good look for them, and they knew it. And the Democrats, Democrats were angry about it, and they had a right to be. Um, but I think the caucus system itself is probably it's an anachronism. I think if you're going to have primaries, you should have primaries. It's easier to count votes. I, I say that just before Super Tuesday when California will prove me a liar by taking a month to count its votes. But in, as a rule, it's easier to count votes than, 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 you know, hands in a gym and people are going here and there to the, their next candidate and, and uh, all the things Iowa does that we thought were quaint now we think are kind of goofy. Well, it was in 1992 that Merle and Earl Black appeared on the Book Notes program here on C-SPAN. They were talking about their book the Vital South, want to show a portion of it and get your reaction. The most interesting thing to me from the Super Tuesday primaries of 1992 in the Deep South states, this is true of, of uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, the states that I've been able to look at, <clears throat> is that for the first time in history, in those primaries, more white voters voted in the Republican primary than in the Democratic primary. I think this is a leading signal of increasing white indifference to the Democratic Party. Uh, many whites just not uh, really caring too much about what the Democrats do. For, for many of the Southern whites who are more racially conservative, I think the Democratic Party has dropped off their radar screen. They're, they're not thinking very much about the Democrats. Uh, is it anymore. race-based? It, race is a, is a substantial part of it, but I think it's usually more than that. I think it's usually a combination of race, economics, uh, tax policy, uh, where the, the final conclusion is reached uh, by, by 
the more racially conservative whites, that the Democratic Party is not representing their interest. Carl Cannon. Well, I, I'm not sure race is the cutting issue the way it was then, even in the South. There are, we've gone on to other things, uh, transgender rights and uh, economic, you know, is, is health care a human right, which is a phrase Bernie Sanders has used. Uh, but, the, but their point was an interesting one because they, the, South, the, the South had always been part of the Democrats' coalition. I mean, back to the time of Thomas Jefferson, but it was part of, of Franklin Roosevelt's co- coalition. He was not a racial conservative. But they'd counted on the Southern South. That that had disappeared by '92, and there were people. And one of them is a, a friend of mine from. He's also from California, Les Francis, who went to San Jose State. But and he worked he worked in the Carter White House, and he was at the DNC in '92. And I remember interviewing him. And you'll remember for a long time, Bill, J- Bill Clinton was running third that year, behind Ross Perot and George H. W. Bush. And I had a talk with Les. This is May, I mean, late in the game, May of 92. They were worried at the DNC that Clinton would finish a distant third and not qualify for federal matching money. Now, that's a quaint concept because George W. Bush blew that out of the water, but but that you wouldn't be funded. And, and, And Les and some other people produced a paper internally at the DNC and said, our future's not in the South, our future's in the West. And this, I, I wrote about it at the time, and as a Californian, that, that's a local angle and probably a little chauvinistic of me. But it turned out there's a lot, there was a lot there. And for Democrats now to put together the map, they can win without the South. And they hadn't been able to do that until 92. Bill Clinton was a Southerner. And so this was, and he, and he did what, what they wanted him to do. He was able to attract enough black votes and progressive whites in the, in the South who were still proud of, proud of Bill Clinton has a Southern accent. He was one of them, and, and that, they like that. But I think that's not the coalition anymore. That's not really the, the, as you look at the electoral map, what the Democrats are trying to do anymore. Well, that 1992 Super Tuesday was March 10th. There were 11 states participating, a lot, again, a lot of Southern states. Bill Clinton called himself the comeback kid in New Hampshire, but Super Tuesday really set him on the path, correct? That's right, and he... He won all those southern states, and he and he also uh, he also uh, you know by so Jerry he, Paul Songus was in that and Jerry Brown, and it wasn't it wasn't a strong field, but uh, when he when when he wins that day, and then a week later on the St. Patrick's primary in Illinois and I think Michigan, he wins and he clinches it. Um, Johnny Apple of the New York Times said this way, uh, Southern Democratic leaders achieved what they th- sought in vain to do four years ago, providing a mighty he forward to the presidential bid of a moderate candidate for their, from their own region. That's right. But in a sense, but I'm not, I don't think that's the, I'm not sure that's the formula anymore. And, and if you remember, in, by 2000, and that's not that, eight years later, when Al Gore tries to win, he can't even carry Arkansas or Tennessee. Clinton's home state and his home state. So, in in that sense, uh, with all you know, due respect, uh, Frank O'Connor, that may have been the last hurrah for the Southern for the Southern Democrats. Ninety two. You talked about formula, Mr. Cannon. What is the what's the motivation for a state to join Super Tuesday? Well, you kind of get lost in the attention, but look, some of these states. Uh, the early states, 
New Hampshire. It's part of the fabric of the, the culture of that state. And I've been to those places. I've been in those coffee clutches. It is what it advertises. It's a chance for people, voters, on a, on a retail level, to take their measure of the candidate and say what they think of him. It, it's, you know, it's, it's, it harks back to the town halls of New England that, that predate the, the Declaration of Independence. It is, it is a system that you'd hate to throw out altogether. Um, Iowa, we've talked about that. that. That's such a mess. I'm having trouble defending that anymore, but I used to. Um, but, but, but it's a similar thing. In, in Iowa, I will defend it. In Iowa, Rick Santorum's at 5% in December uh, in 2012. The night of the, you know, a month and a half later on the night of the caucuses, it's a dead heat between him and Mitt Romney. How did he do that? He went to every county in the state and he talked to people. And, and a level of energy, and he, he convinced them that he had the passion that conservatives were looking for. It also foretold some problems for Mitt Romney. It, it, it tells you what's going on in the party, these early states. Um, but the other, and then, but then the other states, they decide they want, they want, they want to say so too. And this is, in a way, more important than it ever was. And here's why. On no, in November, most of us in the country will are all essentially disenfranchised by this Manichaean, polarized environment we're in. We don't have a national election. We have 51 elections, winner take all, state by state except in a handful of those states, the winner is, is foreordained. If, and you, you can, I'll te- you tell me the state, and then I'll tell you it's a D or an R state, and nobody thinks that's a great system, especially when the parties are polarized, because there's so few moderate, not only are states left out, centrists are left out. And so what you're down to is swing voters in swing states are the only people who count in national in, in November, and you know the states as well as I do, Peter. You know, and, and we, we we could even be liberal and add let's add uh, Colorado and Arizona and Virginia and and Minnesota even to them, but then we're down to the core states we talk about every every four years: uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Florida, Ohio, New Hampshire, New Mexico. Everybody else's vote is pretty much foreordained. So the, the, the political parties in these states and the rank-and-file voters think, well, maybe we can have a choice in the nominating process. And this is the great rush to not only to front-load the thing, but to get on Super Tuesday, to get, to get on the calendar before the nominee is chosen. And it's a human nature. And I don't, the answer may be regional primaries, but, but what we're doing now is it, it doesn't help the parties always get the nominee, they sh- their best nominee, but it's certainly understandable why voters in these states want to have a say-so. But Donald Trump really kind of flipped the script in 2016, didn't he, by going to Michigan and going to Pennsylvania and actually winning them for the Republicans for the first time in a long time. Well, and look, Trump told us something, just like Bernie Sanders is telling us something this time, and and Bernie Sanders did last time. There were states, Peter, where... Conservatives notice this, the, the never-Trump conservatives, and it worried them. Progressives, um, left-wing progressives like Michael Moore noticed this and, and tried to warn the parties. Hillary Clinton had difficulty in November in states where that Bernie Sanders carried against her in the primary and Donald Trump won in the Republican primary. And Michigan was, fits that bill. So did Indiana. You know, we think of Indiana. Oh, Barack Obama carried Indiana. The, Republican, the, the Democrats aren't even going to compete there this time. And what happened in Indiana in May, and it essentially ended, it essentially clinched it for Donald Trump, and it, and and 
it kept Bernie Sanders in the race all the way to the convention was you had everywhere in those states that Bernie Sanders and Trump, if, if, they were saying very similar things. And they were talking to working class Americans in traditional industries who'd been left behind. And they talked about NAFTA. There was a, a, a plant there, two plants there that made refrigerating equipment. Uh, Carrier was the name of the company. And they announced the company, some big conglomerate in New York, that they were getting rid of those jobs and sending them to Mexico. And they weren't even all that coy about it. They said, well, we can pay the people in Mexico because after $3 an hour, we're paying you $20 an hour. And these companies were profitable. And Donald Trump, they, Bernie Sanders and Tr Donald Trump used slightly different arguments, but they both really attacked this as what was wrong with the economy. And they said that, th that the two parties had let people down. And so, you know, Donald Trump wasn't really a Republican. And Bernie Sanders, until he ran four years ago, if, he, if you called him a Democrat, he would correct you. So these two guys have come in and tried to take over these two parties. And one of them has done it, and the other's halfway there. And that's, the, that's a warning shot to these two parties. And it also shows you why these political primaries are so important if we, the people in Washington and the political writers, listen to what the voters are telling us. Well, you talked about the political primaries and some of the problems that we've had so far this year, there's a movement afoot to get rid of the Electoral College. Well, yeah, and, and this came up in 2000, and when George W. Bush won, despite, you know, at the Supreme Court and the Florida Supreme Court and the hanging chads and the Florida recount and all that, but even when that, even, even, if, it, even if you grant that he won Florida, and, and I'm convinced he did, there are recounts and but he wanted, you know, 500 votes, 1,000 votes out of several million cast. But, but, if, if, uh, but he lost the popular vote by, you know, almost half a million votes. I think half a million votes. And people say, wait a minute, Hillary Clinton was on. Wait, wait, is that the way we should be doing this? Now, when, you're, when your Democratic friend said this to you, if you were, if you were me, you'd say, okay, I, I, I get the point. But if Hillary Clinton had lost the popular vote by half a million votes, and won the Electoral College, would you be saying this? And if they were friends of yours, they would admit, well, no, I probably wouldn't. The, but, this thing, but this thing, four years ago, wasn't half a million votes. It was, you know, almost two and a half. Three, three million. Between yeah. two and a half and three million votes. Yeah. And it could happen again. Now, there's a limit to the math, because it can't be 20 million. But... But if it's 4 million votes or 5 million votes, you know, that, that's, to me, stresses the Constitution. I've always believed in the logic of the Electoral College, and it's the same logic of the Senate. But at some point, you know, when California has 40 million people and, you know, Wyoming still has less than a million, should each state really get two senators? It, it, becomes, it becomes a more difficult argument to make. Even the founders knew what they were doing, they may not have known where we were going in two centuries. And this is the problem with the Electoral College. At some point, the one person, one vote, um, it, it, it's, not, it's not in the Bible, you know? It's not, it's not a law of nature, but it's pretty good common sense. And if one party keeps winning while losing, I think, I think the country will look at this. Well, back to 1992, George H.W. Bush was a nominee, but... Pat Buchanan on Super Tuesday won about 35% of the delegates. That's right. Now, what is that? But what did that tell you? I told you that 
He got a prime speaking spot in Houston that year, too. Yeah, but it told you two things. One, it told you George H.W. Bush was going to be the nominee. You win a third. You're not challenging. You're not a threat to the guy. But it also showed you that this might not have been as strong a candidate as we thought. George H.W. Bush, up until that point, had the highest Gallup approval, job approval rating in American history. And we'd never seen anything close to it. And this... This is the gold standard in social science because the question has been asked identically word for word the same way since George Gallup was calling people in the 30s in Kansas. Do you approve or disapprove the job Harry S. Truman, Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan is doing as president? And after the Gulf War, George H.W. Bush was 90%. It was unheard of. But but there there was a... but that was sort of rallying behind the flag, as it turned out. And there were some signs that's always what it was, because the, there's another good social science question. It's the right track, wrong track question. I think the country's heading in the right direction, the wrong direction. If it's the wrong direction, that's not a great number for an incumbent to be reelected. And even, at the, even when Bush is at 90%, those numbers were about 45, 45. People were torn on that. And so, you know, George H.W. Bush, when he's... he's Pat Buchanan, he, this guy comes out of a TV studio and he's getting a third of the Republican vote. What it suggested was that Bush may be vulnerable in November, and he turned out to be. Well, 1996, only seven states participated in Super Tuesday. Bob Dole clinched it that day, and Steve Forbes and Pat Buchanan had to drop out. But uh, do you know why it dipped to seven states? Well, yeah. And by the way, where were you at this point in your career in 1996? Were you covering? I was Super covering. Tuesday? I was Politics? covering the Clinton White House, and you know it was, and we were uh, going around the country, talking about the bridge to the 20th century, and the the, the fiscal conservatives in the in the uh, Senate had had the bridge to nowhere. Well, this was the bridge to the 21st century, and and we scratched our heads. So did the audiences, but. The economy was doing great, and Bill Clinton was a great campaigner. And he, he was never Dole was he was never Dole was never much of a threat to him. And at some point, Bob Dole got here's a legitimate war hero, right? And he's a and, and Clinton's going around telling all these whoppers and just being glib. And Dole gets mad. Where's the outrage? Uh, well, the economy was doing good, and Clinton seemed very capable, and audiences loved him. So it was it was a it was an election about not much. It wasn't one of... Bill Clinton would say this is the most important election in our history, but it wasn't. It was an election between two capable guys and the incumbent won. Well, in 2000, the Democratic... uh, I'm sorry. uh, Yes, in 2000, uh, 16... Back up to 16 states participating in Super Tuesday. Bill Bradley ended his campaign after Super Tuesday, and George W. Bush ended... John McCain's campaign because of his big victories. 2004, John Kerry did quite well going into that. But then we get to 2008. And on the Democratic side, we want to show a little video of two people, both in a sense claiming victory. And tonight, in record numbers, You voted not just to make history, but to remake America. People in America, Samoa, Arkansas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and the great state of New York. 
also, I also want to congratulate Senator Obama for his victories tonight, and I look forward to continuing our campaign and our debates about how to leave this country better off for the next generation, because that is the work of my life. The polls, the polls are just closing in California. And, and the votes are still being counted in cities and towns across America. But there is one thing, you know I love you back. But there is one thing on this February night that we do not need the final results to know. Our time has come. You see, the challenges we face will not be solved with one meeting in one night. It will not be resolved on even a super-duper Tuesday. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. So, Carl Cannon, that was kind of a split decision on the Democratic side, wasn't it? Well, it was, it was, Mar- it was uh, February 5th. I think you had 25 states. 2008. 2008. And... Each of them playing victory. Well, why not? They split. They split the vote. Um, Hillary Clinton. Uh, they. They. The vote. He, he. They each won half the states. They each won half the vote. They each won half the delegates. Uh, then. Then the the press starts saying, "Well, there's a Super Tuesday too in March." But that that election uh, was you know it was almost a national primary, and you know the lessons for us are. There's a couple of things to think about. One is you really only had two candidates. And that's that's for the political parties that's better because then you then you can have a, a more clear cut winner. But in this case they tied and they tied all the way through. I mean this thing was a dead heat. They tied and it, it went to the convention. Somebody had to win. Uh Barack Obama was shockingly well organized for a freshman senator and he won these he won more of these delegates in these caucus states. But in the end, they got about the same number of votes. And it's, it's why he made her Secretary of State. It's why she was first in line to be the next nominee, because everybody understood it could have gone the other way just as easily. And when they each, each of them said that this was historic night, well, it was right, because you were either going to have the first African-American president in United States history, or you were going to have the first woman president in United States history. And you know, if you were a Democrat at that time, you thought, boy, we've had these years, we've had these terrible candidates, now we have two great candidates in one year. That's how people in the party saw it on February 5th, 2008. Well, on the other side, on the Republican side, I have this vague memory of the summer of 2000 and basically John McCain being politically dead in the water. And along came 2008. Here he is on Super Tuesday night, February 5th. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tonight, my friends, we've won a number of important victories in the closest thing we've ever had to a national primary. 
We've won some of the biggest states in the country. We've, we've won primaries in the West, the South, the Midwest, and the Northeast. And although I've never minded the role of the underdog and have relished as much as anyone come from behind wins, tonight, I think we must get used to the idea that we are the Republican Party frontrunner for the nomination... It was quite the comeback for him, wasn't it? Well, you know, he he had uh, he'd been given up for dead. He was the Joe Biden of this year, and he came back and he and after he he'd lost to Bush in two thousand and in two thousand. And he what he'd done is he he'd won New Hampshire. He'd swamped Bush in New Hampshire, and people thought, oh, we're going to have this Maverick be the president. But in two thousand eight, he's no longer the Maverick, and and this is. This is the old Dem- this is the old Republican Party where they they nominate the person whose turn it was, and it was his turn. And he and and the Super t- Super Tuesday there did exactly what one of the rare times what the what the establishment of the party wanted it to do. It picked the person who was next in line, who the party leaders, and look, it'd been tough for them to come to the to that point with John McCain. But by two thousand eight, that's where they were. And he, he, beat, he beat Romney, he beat Huckabee, and he was the guy after Super Tuesday. He referenced national primary. You think that's a good idea? I, mm, I don't know. That's for the parties to decide. But let, let, let's think about it in another way, though. Because you've got all this early voting now, and you have these debates and campaigns. If you had a national primary, the campaign couldn't unfold organically. We, we learn things about these candidates as the campaign goes on. So what, what to me, m- make more sense is to have four or five regional primaries in a rolling order, and a different order every time. Iowa and New Hampshire wouldn't get to go first every time. And if you think about it, it's backwards anyway. Winter in New Hampshire and Iowa is terrible. Spring is those states could be lovely. So you probably want to start down south. But I... Regional primaries make make more sense. You'd have people with regional strength. The parties could decide if they want to do it winner-take-all or region-take-all even. But this hodgepodge that, that you have to do every year, they always seem to be one step behind. You know, they're fighting the last war. And so, the part, look, the party leaders who designed this system this year, believe me, they did not do it to favor Bernie Sanders. But as long as you've got seven candidates, it does favor Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, a regional primary to me would allow people to plan ahead. You'd have people who were strength. If a person showed strength in a region where he wasn't from or she wasn't from, it would, it would show the party this might be a national candidate. That might be a better way to go. Well, Carl Cannon, this is not the first time that's been proposed. No, it's the last time. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the last person. That it's, said, why hasn't it happened? Well, states don't want to give up their prerogative, and the, the, the national party has trouble telling them what to do. Nobody can jump in front of Iowa. Nobody can declare that we're going to hold our primary slash caucus on X date. You know, it, it's interesting to see how you'd get there. It would probably, uh, to paraphrase Hillary Clinton, it would take a president, not a village. It would take a president. But what do presidents think about? They think about their own reelection. Let's be honest. Um, but a president who, who thought about this and wanted to position his party for the future. And I, look, I don't mean to be critical of these people, but they don't even pick vice presidents within mind for the future. You know, they, 
being president is a tough enough job and winning is tough enough. That's all they're focused on. But if a president and, and the president are this phrase we use, the titular head of their party, they're more than that. They're the head of their party. The president of the United States runs the RNC and the DNC. That, that the president would have, could do a lot. Uh, but you'd have to get somebody who would be thinking outside their own head and outside their own future. And our system doesn't seem to be producing people who take the long view. Well, Super Tuesday 2008, there were 24 states in the Democratic primaries, 21 GOP states. In 2012, that dropped to 10 states for the GOP. Mitt Romney scored a knockout victory over over Newt Gingrich and Ron Paul and and, uh, and Rick Santorum. And Rick Santorum. And then we come to 2016, and we're at 11 states. This was referred to as the SEC primary. Yeah, well, that's the southern states, and and yeah, that that's returning to its roots in a sense. Exactly, returning to its roots. And so, who do you when you set up a southern primary um, in a in an election that has Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Newt Gingrich? Uh, you don't really think that a billionaire from Queens with a thick New York accent who's never held office is going to sweep your SEC primary, but that that. That's that's why it's uh, it's hard to look. That's what makes politics fun. You know, if we already knew how it was going to come out, we Peter, we wouldn't be covering it. And people wouldn't be watching. Out of those eleven states, a third of the delegates for the Democrats were in play, and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton split. Hillary Clinton did better than Bernie Sanders. On the uh, GOP side, half of the delegates were at stake, and President Trump won. On Super Tuesday, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, three southern states, Massachusetts, Tennessee, southern, Vermont, and Virginia, another southern state. And and the decisive state that day was probably Florida, and and he was and and that was Marco Rubio's last. Day. It was his Alamo, as it turned out. He he was driven from the race, and you know Donald Trump has a he's got a place down there at Mar-a-Lago, but he's not a Floridian, and he and he won in Florida, and essentially ended it by winning Florida. And Ted Cruz, that same night in 2016, won Alaska, Oklahoma, and Texas, while Marco Rubio won Minnesota. Well, he won a Minnesota, he won won a Minnesota um, caucus, but you could win a bar bet. There was a state he won a primary in. Uh, Ah, Here's a hint. It's not a state. American Samoa. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Puerto uh, Rico. Yeah, my son lives in Puerto Rico, and I talked my uh, editor, I talked my bosses, and they said, well, you know, this Puerto Rico thing's important to Rubio, you know, so I went down and covered it. He won, but it wasn't important to him. Where were you at that point in 2016? With I, Real Clear Politics. Yeah, I was with Real Clear Politics. And, and where, do, where were you on Super Tuesday that night? Yeah, I was, uh, oh, I was in our newsroom. We, 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 we got our reporters together, and um, it was, one, you know, it was a night where the last, the last doubter, uh, even among the press corps, thought that this Donald Trump thing was real. That was put to rest, Super Tuesday, 2016. Well, March 1st, 2016, here's the president on Super Tuesday night. This has been an amazing evening. Already we've won five major states, and it looks like we could win six or seven or eight or nine. Uh, it's really been... It's really been great. I want to congratulate Ted on the winning of Texas. He worked hard on it, and he, uh, I know how hard he worked, actually. And uh, so I congratulate Ted Cruz on that win. That was an excellent win. 
I know it was a very tough night for Marco Rubio. He had a tough night, but uh, he worked hard. He spent a lot of money. He is a lightweight, as I've said many times before. But uh, you know what? We're going to go to Florida. We're going to spend so much time in Florida. We've got about a 20-point lead. Uh, I know that a lot of groups, a lot of the special interests and a lot of the lobbyists and the people that want to have their little senator do exactly as they want. They're going to put 20 or 25 million dollars into it over the next two weeks from what just came over the wires. And frankly, I think that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, it's fine. And if he wins, they'll have totally control, total control. But he's not going anywhere anyway. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> There's a phrase, gracious winner, but it doesn't come to mind. <laughs> when Trump wins, he sort of puts his foot on your neck. Um, the other thing about that night, Peter, uh, there's Chris Christie, who I thought, think maybe thought he was going to be the vice president, but he, he wasn't. But the uh, is uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, Hillary Clinton won seven states that night, uh, and Bernie won four. So she had, she had now 2,205 delegates. He had 1,840 delegates. And what that, that showed a couple of things. Again, and it was like, it was like George H.W. Bush in 92, the, the year Hillary's husband beat him. She, she couldn't quite put this guy away. And it showed two things, that he was stronger than the media thought he would be and than his colleagues in Congress thought he would be, uh, that he had real staying power and that she might be vulnerable. And so that, that, that night, Super Tuesday, four years ago, really foreshadowed what was going to happen. Well, Carl Cannon, in our remaining 30 seconds, give us a thumbnail of the 771 superdelegates and their potential role. Well, on the Democratic side, those, they want to get to a second ballot so they can have a role because superdelegates, unpledged superdelegates, Delegates can't go against their pledge this time. They have to vote for the person who they're pledged to vote for. What they'd like to do is to be able to get to a second ballot. And who they pick is anybody's guess. There's, no, there's nothing in the party rules that says the nominee has to be any of those seven people who are on the stage in South Carolina, uh, in Nevada. It can be anybody they, they want. Um, I wrote a column for Real Clear Politics, and I said that... Uh, you know, uh, it, it could be like 1880 in Chicago on the Republican side when James Garfield gets up to give a speech in, in support of fellow Ohioan, Senator uh, Sherman, and at some point in the speech stops and says, what do we want? And somebody from the audience calls out, we want Garfield. And the chant goes up, we want Garfield, we want Garfield. I reprised that and updated a little bit, and in my scenario, uh, it was Michelle Obama who was speaking to the convention, and she, when she paused and made the mistake of saying, what do we want, they chanted, we want Michelle, we want Michelle, and she was acclaimed by the convention. A, fr a friend of mine who was a lawyer called me and said, you don't usually write columns like this. He said, but if this happens, I want to be your booking agent. Carl Cannon, Real Clear Politics. Stay tuned for the Democratic Convention, July 13th through 16th in Milwaukee. Thanks for being with us on Q&A. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. 
You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. <laughs>